Romans 5, now in, again, the kind of line of thought, Paul has been talking about the gospel, this righteousness of God. Again, everybody brought under sin, standing guilty before God, mouths closed. Then God shown through the work of Christ as a propitiation, how he was patient with sin in the past and even our sins here in the future because of the redemption that we have in Christ. So now he is both just and the justifier of the one who would come. And we come through faith as it has always been God's plan, which he showed in the Old Testament, even through Abraham and David. And he's brought us to this place where now having been justified, we have these incredible promises from God that we stand in and we have, and then we grow in our personal experience in so much so that we can hope in those things, even in the middle of the difficulties we face in this life, which are real and still come to Christians. They produce something in us, and God sheds his love abroad in our hearts by his Holy Spirit, who he's given to us, which he will expand on later. But in 6 through 21 now, he's going to establish that these blessings that he's just kind of declared are secure for us in Jesus Christ in Christ's love, in his life, and in his headship in comparison with Adam. So we're going to begin in verse 6. It says this, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God or boast in him, is the idea, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So Paul here, wanting to display or show or have us understand the love of God, states man's kind of total moral inability in the simplest terms. So he says we were without strength. That means we had no power to save ourselves. We were ungodly which means we had no power to live godly lives. We were sinners, which means we had no power to hit the mark. We were under wrath, which means we had no power to escape our penalty. And we were his enemies, which means we were actively working against him. We weren't just neutral against God's plan. We were literally enemies of God. And it's in that state, that Christ, he says, died for the ungodly. In, in that reality of our lives where he found all of us, that's where his love becomes displayed. And this brings security to us because if we were all those things when he died for us, now that he saved us, we're going to see much more, much more. Can he not come through on all that he has said? And will he not do that? So 
Paul will admit, you notice as he says here in verse 7, first scarcely for a righteous man will one die. The idea of being a just man, like a civil person, this is the thing we would say, like, is he a good guy? Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. You know, somebody who kind of does what they're supposed to do. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone will even dare to die. And the, the idea being there is, this is somebody who's lived a really good life. Like there is, we recognize something intrinsically valuable about the life that they're leading. Um, I believe the Bible says just of three men that they were good men. Uh, you can find that on your own. That's, that's your homework for later. I don't have to tell you everything just because I'm up here. And don't do it now. Focus, focus. And, and the idea being that, okay, maybe in a human love, even in those scenarios, is pretty radically displayed. But it doesn't go too far against sin. Our, our human love always has some selfishness tied to it. You know, may, a parent might die for, again, uh, a child or, uh, you know, soldiers who become friends might die later on their lives for one another. The, the idea being here is, you know, we, we're like, we're loving people. I love people. But how much sin does your love endure? I love people at work. Until one of them, you know, steals your lunch. All right, you know, I, I, yeah, I love, you know, my friends here or whatever. But then what, what about when they talk behind our back? Like our love doesn't, doesn't go too far. And, and the furthest it could go is death. And that's a rarity that we would see that. Yet, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He finds us in this position, so what does he do? He dies for the ungodly. Look at how he plays this out. For us, by his blood, through the death of his son, for us, God demonstrates his own love for us in Christ dying for us. God's love is embodied sincerely and truly for all the world to see. If, if again, we want to know, how do I know God loves me? Well, here is what he's saying. Here, here is how his love is demonstrated. It's embodied in Jesus Christ dying for us. Honestly, the love of God is a difficult thing to speak about, not because it's not a wonderful topic, because it's such a wonderful topic, you feel like you always do it a disservice. How, how can any human being really well speak of the love of God? A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, Yet if we would know God and for others' sake tell what we know, we must try to speak of his love. All Christians have tried, but none has ever done it very well. I can no more do justice to that awesome and wonder-filled theme than a child can grasp a star. Still, by reaching toward the star, the child may call our attention to it and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. So as I stretch my heart toward the high, shining love of God, someone who has not before known about it may be encouraged to look up and have hope. It's tough to talk about his love. But if we're going to talk about his love, 
I think this is the best way to do it. Because what he says here in the verse is not God's love is demonstrated in our bank account, in our personal health, how our marriage went, how our family is, and all these different ways, surely God can show his love. But how was his love embodied and demonstrated toward us in the cross of Jesus Christ? This is how it's demonstrated. So if I'm going to point at the love of God so that other people can see it, maybe have their attention drawn that way, This is what I have to point at. Because it is, notice, first, it is God's love. I love this, just this little phrase, his own love, Paul says. It's in contrast to other loves, so unlike the other loves of the world. It's not like the love of Buddha, who said, he who loves 50 has 50 woes. Your love's always going to have pain. So you distance yourself from it. It's not like the love of Allah where you're not sure whether he actually loves you or not. It's not like the love of the Greek gods or some of the pagan gods that were so fickle that could love you one moment and then you do something wrong and the next moment they're ready to kill you. It's not like the love of human beings that has its quick limits. God's love is his own love. It is unique to any other love. It is shown in a unique way. It is revealed, commended, and shown with nothing from us, ungodly sinners, that would draw it. He loves because of who he is, not because of who we are. And he proves that his reason for loving is really in himself. What we see in Jesus demonstrating God's love is truly the love of heaven. It's an agape type of love. The Bible says God is love, not just that he is loving toward us. He is love. What we see in God is love, and love is him in truth. The world has false versions of love. It has skewed versions of love. We have strange ideas of love. We, we think things are loving when really they're not. Yet there's always something in us that, that is self-centered in loving. There's always something that, that is connected because we have these needs. But God, he's perfect. He has no needs. And therefore, he can love freely, truly freely of himself, in himself. He can love sinners in this way. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge looks something of a Christian apologist, but one of the things he said about getting older than he said was a benefit. He said, I realized when I got older, I was more free to love people because I didn't care about things anymore. He said, I didn't care about the money I had or might make. I didn't care about how connecting with somebody would, would show my prestige or raise my type of reputation. Right? I didn't care what this person had. Didn't care if I could go over and swim in their pool or something. Right? There's always, we always have some type of, there's some little selfishness in our love. Their, their being loved will benefit me in some way. 
He said, when I got older, a lot of those things, I didn't care about them anymore. And I found myself able to love more freely. But, but in all of our human love, there comes an end to that. There's, there's always some selfish part still there. But in God, there's none of that. He doesn't have a need. doesn't have strings attached. His reputation doesn't get raised. When Jesus walked around, we see this embodied in his life, and he loved people. None of his disciples raised his reputation. He wasn't hanging out with people because they offered him anything. His life was not benefited. Actually, it was more difficult. But it wasn't hard for him to do those things because he is love. Free, free truly to love us. And it's demonstrated in the fact that Christ died for us. His own love shown in Christ dying for us, his son. Because really, how could the love of God be demonstrated any other way? How could the perfect love of the Father be embodied if not in the Son of God and the Son of Man? If he sent us a human being, could they perfectly show that? He sent plenty of human beings, but they couldn't perfectly show the love of God. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth, and he lost his temper. If he sent a prophet, could they perfectly do it? If he sent an angel, could they perfectly do it? No, there was one way for him to perfectly demonstrate his own love, and that's by sending his son, the person who was one with him. He sent Christ to demonstrate his love for us, and Christ died for us. It's why really the doctrines of the incarnation, the deity of Christ, and the substitutionary atonement of the cross that we talked about earlier are always under attack because they are the clearest demonstrations of God's love for us. Not anything else. And God wants us to know that he was telling us something in Christ Jesus. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Was it just the Jews for envy? Was it Judas for money? Was it the people for Barabbas and blood? Was it Pilate for fear? No, it was none of those things. It was the Father for love. And this is how God demonstrates his own love for us. Christ died for us. And he did it while we were ungodly. And if it's who he is and what he's done, how can any of that change? How is all that comes with his love not secure? Again, Adolf Safir in his book, The Hidden Life, said, God is always loving us with the same intensity as when Christ died for us. His love doesn't change. Again, human love goes up and down. His love is perfect. It's always what it's supposed to be. 
And God demonstrates this incredible love for us while we were still sinners because he has made us to know it. He's not demonstrating something that can't be known or can't be understood. He has made you and I as creation higher than, than anything else in creation because you and I are made to know the love of God more than anything else could know it in a greater capacity to grow in it through the eternal ages. Sin is not your home soil. It's not what human beings were most to be at home in. We were most to be at home in the love of God and the person of God. That's what we were most created to know and understand. And when a human heart sees this correctly, they recognize God's love for them. And there's no way a human being can make that real. But the Holy Ghost can shed the love of God abroad in a human heart. And Paul would say to the Thessalonians, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into patient waiting for Christ Jesus. You and I are supposed to have our hearts directed into this love demonstrated while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners. And if that's the case, is it going to change now that he's redeemed us, paid the price for us, brought us into relationship with himself, given us his Holy Spirit? Is now his display and demonstration going to change? Is his love toward us going to be something different? Of course not. That's his point. The peace we have with God, the access we have with God, the hope we have in glory, the spirit given to us, the new life we have in regeneration. Is that somehow going to change when he demonstrated his love while we were ungodly and sinners and enemies? No, certainly not. It is secure in those things. So he says in nine, much more than he's going to keep making this argument if he's done the lesser or excuse me, the harder thing, it's easier for him to do the lesser thing. We can trust him to do the easier thing. We're going to, be, we're going to have four much mores in this section in verse 9, 10, 15, and 17. Paul's going to have a lot of just contrasts here. We have salvation from wrath in verse 9, salvation to life in verse 10. We have sin abounding and grace abounding in verse 20. We have a reign of death and a reign of life and grace in verses 17 and 21. So Paul's going to keep throwing out these contrasts here in this second, in this section. The first being much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So Paul begins pointing out the fact that, okay, if his blood has justified us, then the resurrected life of Christ will most certainly deliver us from wrath. I don't have to fear God's wrath anymore now. Having been justified by faith, having been washed in his blood, a trap in his commentary would say it's a greater work of God to bring men to grace than being already in the state of grace to bring them to glory because sin is far more distant from grace than grace is from glory. So if he brought us from sin to grace, of course he's going to bring us from grace to glory. That's a shorter distance than the other one. He's, he's going to finish it out here. I don't have to live in fear of God's wrath. 
First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Whether we wake or sleep, we live together with him. Did Christ die for you? Did he shed his blood for you? Then will you not trust him to finish what he shed his blood to do? He's going to come through. He's going to finish what he started in our lives. Our hope, even when we waking or alive or sleep, come to death, is what Jesus said in John 14. Because I live, you will also live. When I'm taking a last breath one day, my hope is not in me living. My hope is that Jesus lives and is resurrected. And he's going to finish what he promised to do in my life. Which means if he lives, I will also live. He's going to come through. He's going to save from wrath. I don't have to live in fear of that. His blood has already paid for me. Then in 10, he will add, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul speaks of the surety of our reconciliation to God here. So if we were enemies and he died for us, we were aliens. The Bible says we were afar off from him. And when it talks about that, it's never, it's never uh, actual footage or mileage in terms of distance from God. When the Bible talks of distance from God, it talks of likeness. I am far off from him because I am nothing like him. I am unable to have communion with him. He is holy and I'm something totally different. I'm far off because I'm an enemy. When it talks of us being brought near, I'm not literally closer to God in that sense. God is everywhere. I am nearer because two can walk together because they're now agreed. There can now be fellowship because of what he's done in a human heart and life. He's made it a new creation. He's given his spirit. There is now true communion. There is reconciliation. There's no more battle between him and who we are in that sense. I'm not an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm a son or daughter because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we now, we live in that reconciliation. It speaks of a relational status, but it says we have received, having been reconciled. I already have it. I don't wait until the very end to receive it. I don't become reconciled when I die and go to heaven. I am, again, currently reconciled to God Almighty. I have peace with him. There is no war between us. And God would have us take advantage of that and come near. And he would also have us call others as well. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 say, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God the Father has done this. And having given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, 
and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us that we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message to the world. We become reconciled to God. We boast in that. We rejoice in that. And our message now to the world is, as if we're pleading through Christ, be reconciled to God. He's died for sinners. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's almost a little summary of everything Paul's been talking about. We have the message of reconciliation because we ourselves have it. And if he has reconciled us when we were still enemies with the cross of Jesus Christ, he says, shall we not be saved by his life? Are we going to be lost after the fact? Is he now going to put distance between us after he's already brought us close? Of course not. His life is securing that for me. We see God wasn't angry at the world and then Christ came and made God happy again. God had his own love that he displayed in this plan of the ages with his son, Jesus Christ, reconciling us back to himself. And we are happy to rejoice in his person, that love, not just his work. The work is incredible, but the gift is a reflection of the giver. I don't just take for granted Christ's humility and sacrifice and agony and the work of the cross on my behalf. The work is a blessing, but it causes me to bless the person. Him who should have the name that's above every name, where every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he's Lord because he's worth it and he earned it. And sadly, again, for all of us, our hearts can be painfully indifferent to him and his person. We can gladly accept the work, right, the get out of hell free card, and ignore the person of Jesus Christ. But, but there really is only so far that line can go. How much can I really enjoy sin that Jesus had to die for and say that I love him and understand his love for me? No, we boast, we rejoice in the reconciliation that we have in Christ Jesus. It becomes our message that we want to share with the world. We become ambassadors of it, and we go to other people who are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ and say, yeah, he died for you too, so that you can be reconciled to him. And Paul says, none of those things are going to change. That reconciliation is secure in Christ. It came while you were an enemy. Will it change now? He did the harder part. This is the easier part. Now in his life. So he's going to build now one more kind of uh, addition on top of that as he goes into 12 down really to the end of the chapter, particularly through 19. Uh, this is one of the tougher passages in Romans. So I'll... I'll read through a little bit, and then I'm going to make some comments. But, uh, you know, one of the things I appreciate, even when we come to hard things in Scripture, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter that our beloved brother Paul wrote in all his epistles with the wisdom God gave him. And then he says this great little phrase, 
some things which are hard to understand. And I love it that literally the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus is like, yeah, Paul, Paul said some confusing things in his letters. Right? He's, he's literally acknowledging what Paul's writing in scripture, but also meaning like, yeah, some of the stuff is kind of confusing. So if you get a little confused, that's all right. Join Peter. Just hang with Jesus. And he'll eventually explain stuff to us. So I'm going to do my best here. But this is one of those spots people have a lot of different views in. So uh, I'll, I'll just give you a little, um, uh, I guess, breakdown. And then we'll read through the passage. He's going to start an idea in verse 12. Pause to give a little bit of explanation in 13 through 17. And then complete the idea in 18 through 19. So uh, the how he gets to his final point in the middle in that kind of pause or parentheses is what's debated. His main point is really not that debated. So verse 12, Paul will say this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. That's his point. Parentheses. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. You're like, what? Yeah, I know. Who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ and a parenthesis finishing up his thought 18 therefore as through one man's offense judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous so here we have this section where paul kind of presents what he's doing is presenting two heads by way of simple explanation you have jesus christ and adam and he says both of those heads kind of have a family tree and their family trees have a certain amount of ramifications based off their decisions. Adam sinned, and therefore his family tree has sinful ramifications. Jesus Christ was obedient and gives a free gift, and all who become a part of his family tree have godly, wonderful, blessed ramifications. Grace, eternal life. So the reality here is that Paul begins to kind of, he wants to put these blessings out there, but say, if you're part of Adam's family tree, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> but the minute you move to Christ's family tree, you're secure. Because everything that comes from him is secure. 
if, if we would use the picture of two fountainheads, right? If, if you have a source of water coming out, turning into a stream or a river, if the one source of water is polluted, the source, then everything that comes downstream will be polluted. If the one source is pure, then everything that comes will be pure. Christ is the pure stream. Adam, who sinned, is impure. So we'll jump into it a little bit. Uh, Again, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. Here, what he's saying is, by simple explanation again, Adam passed down sinful life to all his children. We believe that Adam was a real person. I I will say, just kind of as a side note, uh, Paul believes Genesis 1 through 3. He believes in historical Adam. You cannot read Romans 5 and believe it without also believing that Adam was a real person who made real decisions that had real consequences. There are people who are out there who will say things like, that's not true. Uh, that you become, you become a, a very dangerous purveyor of truth the minute you make statements like that. Uh, because what happens is people will begin to say things like they believe the word of God, but they don't believe the word of God is the word of God. They believe the word of God contains the word of God, which is very different. And there are parts of it that aren't totally true. But of course, only the scholars can tell you which parts are true and which parts aren't. So when Paul says Jannies and Jambres were the names of the Egyptian mystic guys, maybe he was wrong, but it's okay because it's not a major point in the Bible. No, either it's inspired or it's not. And if it's not, then that means we need really smart people to tell us which parts of the Bible we can trust and which ones we can, which is very dangerous. And there are those out there who would claim they believe the word of God is the word of God who don't actually believe that. They believe it contains it. Two very different things and very dangerous. Uh, A slick step to take that can lead people to a lot of negative places. Adam was real. Paul has no trouble believing that. And his whole point he's going to make here is built off of a real Adam making real decisions. So... Again, what he says is, this Adam, through one man, made sin, and sin entered into the world. He sinned personally, and that passed down to all of us. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Ephesians 2.3 tells us we are by nature children of wrath. The, the simple uh, truth is that God created Adam and Eve. Sometimes, and this is important because particularly in the world we live in, there's a lot of discussion about how God made people. Did God make people in his own image and likeness? Didn't he make them like this? Did he make them with gay or homosexual feelings? If he made them, how can they, how can they change those things? Well, listen, this is very important. God made two people, Adam and Eve. He made them perfect, sinless. He also made them with, the Bible says, the breath of lives he breathed into Adam. The ability to procreate after their kind. 
and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. The problem was this. When did they multiply? When they had sinless life or sinful life? They multiplied when they had sinful life. So all Adam had to pass down was life that was dying physically and dead spiritually in a world that was cursed. As Christians, we have an answer for why we see a problem between us and God, us and other human beings, and us and the world we live in. It's called sin. And every human being that's been born is born a sinner. So if you tell me anybody has a certain proclivity to any type of sin, I just say, sure you do, because you're a sinner. That's exactly what the Bible says. All men were born sinners. We are by nature children of wrath. And the world and the flesh and the devil stir that up. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, they stir that up. And how all those things are congealed in any person individually can look a little bit different. All of our sin nature looks a little bit different, but nobody's born without a sin nature. God didn't make them that way. God made human beings sinless. When human beings procreated, they were sinful. And every child that's born into the world is born a sinner. And what the Bible says is that's obvious because death reigned. Death reigned until this one other kid was born. It's kind of like a new beginning, like Adam. So what he's going to tell us here is that the Adam, our representative, the highest representative, the first man, the best man. Sometimes we feel like, well, it's not fair. If I was there, I would have done things. Actually, Adam was the best. You probably would have sinned earlier. That's all that God would have been like, don't eat the fruit. This one, right? You would have, he wouldn't even been able to give you the command you already would have eaten him. So Adam was the, not only the highest man, he was also the first from whom we got all of our life. And that being sinful passes that down to us. So we are all dying sinners. As he said to Adam, dust you came, dust you will return. And people don't want to believe the Bible. God says he made human beings out of dust, breathed the breath of life into them. We die, we breathe the last breath, and we turn back into dust. Seems very biblical. It's going to happen to everybody. And we're all born sinners. So he's going to say 13. He, He puts this parentheses here. And I think Paul adds this parentheses because he knows how people are thinking. And he knows people are going to say, Okay, how did we all sin in Adam? And especially when there was no law. Seems kind of unfair. Like, how, do, how does this kind of work here? So I think Paul's trying to acknowledge that, and he's going to kind of work backwards. So what he says is this. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. He's kind of already talked about this, where he said, Even people who didn't have the law, maybe they weren't transgressing, but they were still sinning. They knew that in their conscience. And it's obvious because, he says, uh, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So his point is, it's obvious because people died. If they didn't have sin, they wouldn't have been dying. They wouldn't have the effects of sin. But death proves they were sinners either way. Then he adds, 
even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So this is really kind of the confusing part. And he's acknowledging uh, one of two things here. Everybody died, he's saying, which means everybody was a sinner and was imprisoned to death. But the question is, who, what is he talking about when he says, even the people who didn't sin like Adam sinned? And there's a number of different thoughts. Some people think Paul is referring literally to children or people who die in the womb or, you know, people who have a handicap, people who don't understand exactly uh, God's law in that way. Some people think he's just referring to our sin nature versus Adam's direct disobedience. When human beings sin after Adam, they weren't in the place Adam was in Eden, innocent. They were already sinners, so their sin was a little bit different. Or some people think he's just acknowledging the different ways that sin worked out before the law. He's still acknowledging, well, they were still sinners, even though they might not have been breaking direct commandments that they were aware of. So the reality is, I'm not sure which one it is. If I had to lean somewhere, I I think I would probably say he's referring to Adam's act of disobedience being a little unique as opposed to ours, but I'm not sure. So uh, he's just acknowledging even those people who didn't sin exactly like Adam, they were still sinners and death still reigned over them. So he says, this Adam who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of Christ in terms of, again, him being the head of a family tree. So all of our life, again, passing down from Adam, but impure, sinful. We're receiving it from a sinful source. We get born into this world and we have problems. Again, nobody in the world and any culture would would argue with this. Are human beings born sinners? Yes, you don't have to teach your kid to lie. They already know how to do that. You don't have to teach them to be selfish. If we look around the world we live in, human beings have problems. They have selfishness problems. They have relational problems. There's racism problems. There's sexual abuse problems. There's greed problems. We could look and just acknowledge all the problems in the world. But the question is, where do the problems come from? And what the Bible teaches is sin comes because human beings are sinners because we're broken by nature. I don't become a sinner once I get born and then do my first sin. I come into the world with a broken nature. It might look a little bit different than somebody else's broken sin nature, but I am by nature a child of wrath. I'm already under condemnation. And the minute I'm born in this world, I begin to die. And that's all because of sin. And Adam is a picture in that he's a source of life. But 15, he says the free gift is not like the offense. The source of life that comes from Christ is a free gift. And it's not like, it's not coming to us the same way Adam's sin did. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift 
by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from the many offenses resulted in justification. Paul here brings out the differences of these two heads, and he's saying, just as sin and death continue in Adam's line, so grace and justification and life will continue in Jesus's line. Except Adam's line is mandatory, and Jesus's is a free gift. There's a difference there. God's free gift of grace wasn't a response to any good works, but it came after many sins and offenses, he says. Hence, the results of the two men are contrasted. The results of the creator are far greater than the acts of the creation. Adam, who is a creation, has his results in their sinful condemnation, but the results of the creator are to greater things. Someone simply said, Christ is more powerful to save than Adam is powerful to bring ruin. It's a great summary. Which family tree are you a part of? Are you part of the family of God? If, If I'm just a part of Adam's line, I get that by birth, and I'm born a sinner. And it works out in my life, and it works out in everybody else's life, and it's proved by the results. But I can be gifted to have new life, and that new life has a new source in Jesus Christ. He's somebody who comes to have a family tree, except it's a little different. And its results are much greater. And I can be a part of that family instead. So the summary, again, verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. There's a wonderful contrast here between the two. There's, there's a gift given here. And Christ's work is much greater than Adam's work. Adam's disobedience produces something. So does Christ's obedience. And there's so much life that the enemy wants us to blind, wants to blind us to, that is in the work of Jesus Christ. And again, if it's the the security is what's important here. If it comes from His line, the eternal life, the justification, the grace that comes from that fountainhead, will never change, because He will never be impure. He's unlike Adam in the fact that he cannot fail. He is already victorious. And the world's eyes are on ways to ignore the truth about themselves and the world they live in. And our eyes are to be on Jesus Christ, who seemed like foolishness to the world. And he's most certainly not the wisdom of the world. 
but he is the savior of the world. He is the answer for sin in the world. And all that we have in him becomes secure. We are translated from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. So, he says, moreover, the law entered that the offenses might abound. This being the law filled the place between Moses and Jesus' coming, causing sin to be evident for our, and our need for righteousness just as evident outside of the law. We've kind of talked about that. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And here we have a great little picture. There's two different words in the Greek for abound. The first, the first sin means to increase or to be added to. The second there, though, for grace means to overflow beyond measure. The one is greater than the other. Where sin abounded, where we see sin abounding in the world, it's increasing. Every person that's born is increasing. We, we see it flood every arena. Why is social media filled with sin? Because all it is is a way to expand what's in the human heart and communicate it. And you know what's there? Darkness. So that's what's expanded. I don't know why there's so little light there, because there's little light in human beings. And what we find in the world is, wherever we find human beings, we find sinners. And sin abounds, and it increases. But in Jesus Christ, grace increases beyond measure to overflowing, where we would look and begin to feel hopeless because of the reality of sin, we would be hopeless. We would be without power. We would be ourselves a part of that sin if it were not for Jesus Christ. If it were not for another fountain that could superabound, that wherever sin increases, it could increase beyond measure in that place. Paul the Apostle knew this. He knew it personally. He was Saul. He became Paul. He became, he says, a trophy of God's grace. God wanted to use me as a pattern of long suffering where people could look and say, if his grace could go that far in that dude's life, I could get saved too. But, but the wonderful picture here is, even though our flesh and our humanity ties us to Adam and death and judgment, our faith in Christ unites us to him in resurrection and grace and eternal life. Paul will say in 8.10, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Again, Campbell Morgan in his commentary on Romans says, if this great passage means anything, it clearly declares that it is now possible for every human being to escape from the result of the work of either by choosing relationship to the other. We could feel like it's not fair that we're born sinners, dying in the world. But Jesus made a way for you not to stay there. And if you look at your sin and say, man, my sin has just increased. It fills up more than you can imagine. You could be very true. I might not be able to imagine it. But it does not overabound the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God demonstrates his love 
in giving Jesus Christ to die for sinners. If you want to know that God loves you tonight, you look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where his love is demonstrated. And whatever sin we face, personally, publicly, in this world we live in, there is a place where we can go to have that overflow, that increase of life that's greater than the sin we face. Not because of who we are, because of who he is. And again, if we, if we took that family tree, if we took Adam and we traced it out, and you, you know, we had the 23andMe or whatever it is, Ancestry.com, and we traced it. Well, it would get small again because of Noah, right? It would go big and then small. And then it would all trace back out. We would find ourselves somewhere down that line. And that just means the sin came right down to us. But what happens is, when we accept that free gift from Jesus Christ, he takes us and he puts us in a new spot. We're not a part of this family tree anymore and all that comes with it. We're a part of now his family tree where the new Adam is there. And all that comes down from him comes down as a fountain overflowing more so than could have ever come from this other fountain. And it never changes. It's never going to be impure. And we get to be connected to it for eternity. And that's the hope that Paul sticks out here for us. So in 21, he says that as sin reigned in death, there was a kingdom there. Sin had a kingdom. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a new kingdom, and we get to be a part of that new kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. And Lord, I do pray for each of us, for myself, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to understand your love in greater ways. I pray that we could behold you in new ways. You are constantly new. You are constantly flowing, giving good gifts like a sun pouring down its rays with no shadow, no turning. You'll never be anything other than who you are. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you've brought us into your kingdom, into your family, into your line. You've adopted us and made us your own. And I just pray, Lord, that you would allow us to walk in a greater knowledge and security of these things. Pray they would be more than words. They would be life and truth and food for our souls. Reality that we can taste and see is good. And again, Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody here tonight that is still in sin and doesn't know your grace abounding in their life, that they would turn to you in faith tonight and give their life to you. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.